Welcome to Highbrow and Lowbrow, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Powell and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In this episode, we celebrate the work of Maverick Dutch director Paul Verhoeven and look at two seminal films of his career. Steve looks at the gripping wartime drama Black Book and argues it deserves its distinction as the most successful film ever made in the Netherlands. Dan argues that the sci-fi epic Starship Troopers was a career highlight of Verhoeven's Hollywood phase. Have we argued our case successfully? As always, dear listener, the final decision is up to you. Beware the spoilers and enjoy the show. Well, good evening, dear listener, and thank you for joining us for another edition of Highbrow Lowbrow. This episode is a Paul Verhoeven special where Steve and myself will look at two Verhoeven, well, could they be called classics? We'll let you decide. Steve, over to you. Thank you, Dan. My highbrow Paul Verhoeven choice for this episode is Black Book. It is a wartime drama. The film begins in the newly formed state of Israel in the early 1950s. A young woman living in a kibbutz by the name of Rachel Stein, played by Carice Van Houten, is visited by an old friend. Uh, they reminisce about old times. And then the story jumps back to 1944, Nazi-occupied the Netherlands, where Rachel Stein is originally from. As she's Jewish, she's being protected by a Christian family, and she has a hiding place with them. But even though the family is kindly and are looking after her, she still has to put up with some casual anti-Semitism from the patriarch. But the family is killed suddenly in a bombing raid, and Rachel has to make new arrangements to try and escape to allied territory with the Dutch resistance. So she arranges to travel to the liberated south of the Netherlands by riverboat with the rest of her family and, and some of her refugees. Things appear to be going well. They're on the boat, they're celebrating. They think they're only miles away from freedom. And then suddenly the boat is ambushed by a German e-boat. All of her family and the refugees are machine gunned to death. She's the only survivor. She's wounded and she falls into the water and she's not spotted by the Germans who, under the supervision of this sadistic SS officer, are busy looting the bodies for jewellery and money. And Rachel quickly deduces that there must have been a betrayal somewhere because the Germans were ready and waiting for them. So she reteams with the resistance and this time she's sent on a mission to seduce a German officer by the name of Ludwig Muntz and he's played by the German actor Sebastian Koch. The plan is that she gets close to this officer, basically seduce him, and if she's able to do that, they might be able to liberate some members of the resistance who have been taken prisoner and are being tortured. So she does get close to Muntz quite cannily because she'd found out through an early encounter that he's an avid stamp collector and he's missing some royal dutch stamps from his collection and she's able to get the stamps to him and comes on to him quite strongly but as Muntz is no nazi he's a good german and he knows that the nazis have lost the war and germany's lost the war and he's just quite a mature man and wants the war to end and she finds herself genuinely falling for him and by doing so she falls under suspicion of the resistance of being the traitor because there's been a number of resistance operations whatnot that have been rumbled by the germans so there's a traitor somewhere but who is it they suspect it could be her now that's all i'm going to say about the plot for now but dear listener i've barely scratched the surface of the storyline and the narrative of this film there are many many subplots characters stories and not just that many genres that this film touches on 
It is a mystery, a murder mystery. It's a war drama. It's an action film. There are elements of horror. There are elements of romance. And it's quite sexually frank at times of nudity, but also kind of, you know, erotic and, and quite sexy. It probably helps that Carys Van Houten and Sebastian Koch were a couple at the time of filming. They have a really good chemistry together. Anyway, in terms of the production, this was Paul Verhoeven's first film in the Netherlands after more than 15 years of working in Hollywood, where he made some very big films. Dan will be mentioning them later. He co-wrote it with Gerard Suterman, with whom he had collaborated uh, on a number of earlier films, including Soldier of Orange from 1977, which is very similar. It's a wartime drama. It tells the story of Eric Hasselhoff Rolfsima, who was a member of the Dutch resistance who escaped to Britain and joined the RAF. Now, James Bond fans, listen up. I've always got a bit of Bond trivia, and, and this is your little tidbit for this episode. Soldier of Orange dramatizes the Special Operations Executive Mission, which later inspired the opening scene of Goldfinger. You know, the famous scene where Sean Connery swims up on the dock, steps out of uh, his wetsuit, and he's wearing a perfect white tuxedo. Well, that took place in during the war, a Dutch agent, Peter Tazalar. Apologies if I'm getting any of these Dutch pronunciations wrong, but Peter Tazalar landed on the Dutch coast in his wetsuit. He took off his wetsuit and he was wearing a full tuxedo beneath. He then marched past some unsuspecting German soldiers, pretending he was a drunken partygoer. So that wound up in Goldfinger. Anyway, Soldier of Orange is, is a great war film. I would say that Black Book is slightly more entertaining because it's more narrative-based, whereas Soldier of Orange sticks very closely to real events. And the last half an hour feels kind of drawn out because real life and narrative don't always mix perfectly. You have to make some dramatic choices. There are many great things I love about this film. I mentioned some of them uh, in terms of just all the styles it embraces. But I want to mention the flaws. It's set right at the end of the war in Europe. And we never get the sense that the Germans are on the brink of total defeat. All of the German soldiers, the uniforms look perfectly pressed, that all of their machinery and their weaponry all looks very impressive. They seem to have unlimited fuel to drive anywhere. They look a bit like actors who've, who've got the, they've been given the best equipment. But there isn't a really a sense of what really happened in the Netherlands uh, at the end of the war in that the occupied regions underwent a famine known as the Hunger Winter. And there's only one brief clue as to that where a truck crashes. It's a food truck, but it's actually carrying weapons hidden underneath the food. Unfortunately, the truck crash dislodges the weapons and you see these children just descend on all the food because they're starving. Other than that, it feels a bit too expensive, a bit too high production to really get a sense of just how desperate things were in the Netherlands in 1945. However, other scenes I was surprised to learn were based on truth. After the German surrender, there's a scene where a German officer is executed by his uh, fellow German prisoners of war. And this actually happened. German officers had a severe dislike of, of two fellow German prisoners who had deserted from the Kriegsmarine. And they appealed to their Canadian authorities, who were their captors, on a very dubious reading of international law, stating that the German military code still applied, even though Germany was defeated. 
and they managed to execute the two deserters legally. And you know what? They were transported and supplied with the rifles for the execution by the Seaforth Highlanders of Canada. It's difficult to believe, but it happened. And this was previously dramatised on the excellent BBC series Secret Army, which was made in the 1970s about the Belgian resistance. Now, the film says at the beginning that it's inspired by true events. And it's actually, as I said, it takes a lot of true events, melds them together and creates a terrific narrative of that. But it's a bit of a stretch to say it's all completely true. There's emotional autobiography because Verhoeven was born in Amsterdam, was a child during the occupation. His family moved to The Hague, where the Germans had a base for their V1 and V2 rockets. And that base was regularly bombed by the Allies who were trying to uh, destroy Hitler's Wonder Weapons program. So he witnessed a lot of devastation and suffering because the bombing occurred next to a civilian population. So he saw houses of his neighbours go up in flames and stuff. So he had a lot of his own experiences that he could emotionally bring to the film. Rachel Stein, our lead character, brilliantly played by Carries von Houten, was based on Esme van Egen who was a Dutch resistance fighter who fell in love with a German officer. Her punishment for this, she was sentenced to death in a kangaroo court held by the resistance, but was later cleared at the behest of resistance members who were sympathetic to her. But sadly, towards the end of the war, she was executed by the Germans. In the film, Rachel Stein's fate is, is a little happier, but needs to say the film is very, very tense throughout. There's also a murder of a lawyer character at one point in the film that's based on a still unsolved murder today. A lawyer was killed, was murdered at the end, at the end of the war in, in the Netherlands. Although in the film, we find out who did kill that particular character. So I think Verhoeven's being kind of canny in answering questions that have otherwise been lost to history. So the film was shot on location in the Netherlands between August and December of 2005. Now, it was the most expensive Dutch film ever made. In fact, it was three times more expensive than the nearest uh, expensive Dutch film. Now, this is a record Verhoeven has broken several times because when he made Soldier of Orange, that was, at the time in the 1977, the most expensive Dutch film ever made. It can be seen in some ways as a bit of a remake of Soldier of Orange. They touch on similar things about the Dutch resistance and obviously the Nazi occupation and the impending Allied arrival and things like that. In my view, it's better. In some ways, the, the fourth man, his thriller with Jerome Crabbe, he remade in Hollywood as Basic Instinct. He's pretty much said that was a bit of a remake. Because of the huge costs of Black Book, filming was delayed several times uh, over several years, and there were several false starts to the production. But it paid off as it's actually the Netherlands' highest grossing film of all time, and it won three golden calves from the Netherlands Film Festival and was a huge boost to the career of its ensemble cast. Personally, this is probably my favourite Paul Verhoeven film. He's had a wonderfully diverse career and he's made some wonderful films and he's made a few stinkers as well. And sometimes even his stinkers can be kind of guilty pleasures. But this film, the cast is excellent. I've mentioned the leads, but the supporting cast is a real ensemble piece. There are so many characters. It's Dickensian and, you know, it's very well directed. The action sequences are pretty good. And it's tense, it's sexy, it's compelling, and it's got several big flaws. I mentioned just one because I'm sure a couple of others will come up. But in a sense, everything about Verhoeven is big. And it, he reminds me a little bit of Ken Russell. 
that's uh, of an enfant terrible of European cinema in that, you know, Ken Russell makes big operatic films and sometimes the flaws are every bit as big as the pluses. But I will happily forgive him for that because, you know, it's just a great, compelling film. If you've watched it a few times, as I have, you do spot some of the lapses in logic or coherence here and there. Every time I rewatch it, I spot another thing where I'm like, oh, that doesn't quite make sense. But it's still a film that, that draws me in and that I find really compelling and really wonderful. So that's my highbrow poll recommendation for this episode, Black Book. That's a good recommendation, Steve. I didn't realise how long it was. And then I thought, well, I can't complain because you sat through three hours of Das Boot. So... <laughs> <laughs> but once it's once it got going, I, I really enjoyed it. Although I agree with your criticism about its timing and how the Germans always seemed to be in control until suddenly there was a surrender. There didn't seem to be any inkling that they were losing the war. If anything, they were always one step ahead of the Dutch resistance. They just seemed to be in the right place at the right time and people were constantly getting killed. It was a very engrossing tale. Now I've learned, you know, based on true events could mean anything really, couldn't it? So when I see that, I think, well, probably somebody somewhere had some similar story and they went, okay, that'll do. But I thought it held up really well and I quite enjoyed it. And if anything, it's quite a mature film for Verhoeven, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And it's a woman's picture. You've got this fabulously strong female lead and you sense her struggle because, you know, the resistance is quite divided. And here's another flaw I thought. There's one scene where the resistance is sat around this table and Verhoeven is a soul. So one member's like a monarchist, the other's a communist, one's an atheist, one's a Christian, and, and Rachel is Jewish. And it's kind of like, you know, that sounds like the start of a very funny joke, doesn't it? There are moments where like the Christian has pacifist leanings and there's that big extended fight scene in the streets of Amsterdam. Is that the one where he says they're saying shoot him and he won't shoot the guy until he blasphemes? Yes, yes. I was just like, he's shooting him, he's like, blasphemer, blasphemer. And it reminded me of that scene in Life of Brian where the all, all the women go to the stoning with the fake beards. Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose it kind of made sense in that it's not the fact that he blasphemes that's the problem because this guy has betrayed dozens of people to their deaths. It's the fact that the guy needs an excuse to commit murder. So there was, it made a kind of little bit of emotional sense, but I couldn't help suppress a bit of a giggle when I shouldn't have. And again, and there was one other scene. I don't want to hark on too much about this because I don't want to give the impression I, I don't like it, whereas I really like this film. There's one other scene where it's just like, they're treating a member of resistance who was wounded. Then this character puts on a fake moustache and does this Hitler impression, which is kind of amusing. Then some other characters come in and they have an argument about should they go and rescue these people? And they're like, yes, no, yes, no. And then another character takes out the plans and like, okay, let's go. I've got the plans for the building so we can get in. And it's just like, whoa, <laughs> I'm struggling to follow all of this. It's just, it's jumping everywhere. It's, it's kind of like Robert Altman dialogue. Do you remember that scene? I do, yes. <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was a bit all over the place. But broadly speaking, despite those lapses, I, I was surprised at how much the kind of genre hopping worked. Were, were there any moments when you thought, is this a horror movie or is this an action movie? It seemed to, don't you think, did you like the genre hopping? I could see why they were doing it to kind of keep things lively. At no point did it lose me and did I think, oh, why, what does this movie want to be? 
it's not like you know some movies where you think this movie doesn't know what it wants to be so it's genre hopping until it finds its niche whereas this one um i did get the impression they were completely in control with what they were doing just to keep the audience intrigued but at no point was i thinking what on earth is going on in this movie um, unlike some of other Verhoeven stuff where you do think, what on earth is going on in this movie? The one scene that it did, I thought was quite chilling, is when they discover the bug. The German officer, who's just, it is basically the baddie, he's discovered the bug and he knows that the women's resistance colleagues are listening and he is speaking to her as if she's in on the betrayal. And of course, one of his guards has a hand over her mouth so she can't respond. So therefore, all her colleagues are thinking that she's betrayed them. And I thought that was a very powerful scene. There is one scene, I'll warn you now, dear listener, there is one scene where I was having my dinner, uh, probably the worst time in the film. But towards the kind of, how can we put this in the second half of the of the film, don't be having anything to eat. Yeah. After the liberation of the Netherlands, obviously, the yeah. a lot of the collaborators came to uh, unfortunate ends. Um, yeah. And... Um, Yes, that was quite vile. But in a sense, it's clever because um, the actual traitor and the resistance, you, you see people wearing many hats, don't you? And that the people have been doing deals with the Germans while simultaneously doing deals with the resistance. They've been playing both ends off. And then when the Allies arrive, it's amazing how several collaborators managed to suddenly become Dutch patriots. <laughs> and they managed to forge a, a new fate luckily for them they escape any retribution but i think that happens in every war i don't want to get too political dear listeners but images have come out you know in the last week or so in liberated Kursen where collaborators were being executed and whatnot i'm not making a political point either way but it just reminded me of world war ii when normandy was liberated and then when uh, holland was liberated and the women who had married german officers were dragged out and had their hair shaved and humiliated in public and, and that sort of thing in some respects, you know, walls don't change, the sides might change, and the particular geographical location might change, but walls don't change, which is why, I think I can say this, uh, I'm not giving away too much of a spoiler, because we know at the beginning that Rachel survives the war. When you see her in the kibbutz, and the air raid siren goes off, it's early 1950s, so I'm not quite sure if Israel was officially at war at that time, but it's, it's in a state of constant readiness, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because it's surrounded by antagonists and it's like well Rachel's life hasn't changed she's always going to be on the run she's always going to be in some sort of war zone maybe it'd be different if she'd moved to America or London or or I don't know Australia but the fact that she she has gone home to Israel and she finds herself in another potential war zone but she's such a hardened character at this stage that when the credits roll it's still quite a happy ending because it's kind of like, well, actually, I know this woman and I have faith in her that she's going to survive this, that mm. she's going to keep on living a life. I think she's a really great character. And if you like your films with strong female leads, then I think Karis Van Houten does a great job. I mentioned she was in a relationship with Sebastian Koch at the time. I believe she's now engaged to Guy Pearce and they have a child. She's also very good friends with her female co-star in the film, Helena Van Rien, who plays one of the Dutch secretaries working for the Germans, who seems like a very happy collaborator with the Germans. So there is a sense of great chemistry between the cast because, you know, they know each other or they're in relationships with each other. And this is familiar territory for Verhoeven, not just because of stories from his childhood, but it, it feels like probably his most personal film. And after 15 years in Hollywood, Probably a bit of a palate cleanser. I, I think he made some marvellous films in America. I really do. We're going to talk about one in a moment. I think it's nice that he came back to the Netherlands 
to make this film. And it was something of a comeback critically for him because I think his previous film in Hollywood, the film he made before he left, which I haven't seen, was Hollow Man, which I believe didn't do that well. It's all right. I mean, it's not the special effects are good and it's passable, but it's one of those films anybody could have done. There's nothing Verhoeven about it. Well, now that I've shoehorned in Hollywood, do you want to take it away with your choice? I do indeed. I thought we were going to play like Six Degrees of James Elroy because you can tie Black Book to James Elroy, can't you, Steve? Well, yes, I can. Yeah. I was just, oh, yeah, gosh, yeah, you're right. Because if, if Carice Van Houten is engaged to Guy Pearce, Guy Pearce played Ed Exley in LA Confidential, based on a novel by James Elroy. There we are. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Dan. Six You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> so, yes, my choice is Steve's absolute favourite by Paul Verhoeven. It's Showgirls. No, I'm kidding. No, it's not. <laughs> it's the one that came after Showgirls. It's Starship Troopers from 1997. Whenever I heard Verhoeven was doing this, I, you know, having heard about Showgirls, I didn't see it until it was on the telly. And even then, it was just... <laughs> <laughs> this film is wrong on so many levels but I always liked Fairhoven and science fiction with him doing Robocop and Total Recall so I was looking forward to Starship Troopers and I wasn't disappointed just to be aware folks this is what would have been a B-movie the script is B-movie level which will come to the acting is B-movie level which will come to but the budget was 100 million but all that has gone into the CGI and making the bugs look really realistic. The money is there on the screen and they do a good job. But Verhoeven did say he recruited um, the cast for their looks rather than their ability. And that does come across in some of the acting, but we'll get to that. So first of all, the plot, it's set in the 23rd century. Earth is now ruled by the United Citizen Federation, which is a military organization. And in order to gain citizenship, you need to do some federal service or I suppose like national service, which grants you rights to marry and to vote. So the humans are colonizing the galaxy. And of course, they run into hostile alien life on one of the planets highly evolved insectoid creatures called arachnids or bugs, to use the derisive term. So Johnny Rico is your standard high school jock who, to put it politely, is punching above his weight with his girlfriend, Carmen, who's a real careerist. She's officer material and wants to be a pilot. And Johnny doesn't do too well in his exams and he goes into the mobile infantry to follow Carmen because he wants to be with her. But they get separated and then eventually she sends him a Dear John video message. They have a psychic friend called Carl who joins military intelligence and there's also another friend called Dizzy Flores, who's hopelessly in love with Johnny and keeps making a pass, well, not too subtle passes at him while making glaring eyes at Carmen. They all enlist and go their separate ways. And so the, the film, first of all, concentrates on Johnny's training and his interactions with um, Carmen and Dizzy. It's like a standard army film. He seems to be rising through the ranks and then he accidentally gets somebody killed and then he has to suffer He's demoted and he's flagellated and he resigns from the military. But then at the last minute, the war kicks off and there's a scene where he has his resignation slip and the sergeant says to him, is that your signature? And he goes, yes. And the sergeant says, that doesn't look like your signature to me and tears it up. He's come from Buenos Aires and the arachnids have launched missiles on Earth. So there's a bit of a War of the Worlds thing going on there as well. So they've destroyed his hometown. So that really gives him something to fight for. So they land on a planet and basically they underestimate the intelligence of the arachnids. And they get their little behind kicked, shall we say. And a lot of them get killed. They eventually respond to a distress signal. But it turns out that the arachnids, using something called the brain bug, 
which has this proboscis that slashes through your skull and sucks out your brain. They have forced the soldiers and the colonists to send out a distress call on planet B, the roughnecks as they are, go marching in and once again get it handed to them. It's basically a big army film, but with the aliens involved. And it's B-movie material, but the, the fight scenes are very good. And one of the reasons that Verhoeven was attracted to it was because it was scripted by the same guy who did Robocop, Ed Neumeyer. It was the same production team. Phil Tippett was doing the special effects again, and Basil Poldoris was doing the music. So it was the same team behind Robocop, and I think Paul Verhoeven redeemed himself after Showgirls with this, and it's up there with his other science fiction ones like Robocop and Total Recall as a kind of informal trilogy. A lot of the critics accused this film of being a very fascist film with its heavily militarised setting. And the book it's based on by Robert Heinlein is quite militaristic. But whereas the book is quite straight down the line about eulogising the military, Verhoeven subverts that message. One thing you've got to understand about Verhoeven is the films that he made in Hollywood are satirising Hollywood. Robocop satirises privatisation of the police force. And commercialization total recall satirizes again the kind of technology and the vacation industry basic instinct is a satire of all the kind of pulp fiction murder novels showgirls is just it's just a mess and starship troopers is looking at the u.s military machine how it's kind of all hurrah and let's go in and take over a planet and who cares about who's there and what how they react to us, you know? But a lot of people kind of missed the joke, shall we say. And so it got some awful reviews and it was accused of all sorts. And then when everybody sat down and looked at it and thought, he's not being serious in this film, is he? Is he? Just look at it. I mean, it's all one big joke. Now it's kind of been culturally rehabilitated as a good science fiction classic. But if you're watching this and thinking, oh, it's just like a military propaganda film, that's the whole point. It's satirizing military propaganda films, but in a way, sometimes the satire is too much. That sometimes satire needs to be a bit more subtle than it is in this movie to work. Now, I said that he hired acting looks over talent, and well, yes, um, if we look at the CV of the four leads, Casper Van Dien had previously done Saved by the Bell, Beverly Hills 90210, and One Life to Live. Denise Richards, she plays Carmen, she had been in Beverly Hills 90210 and had also been in Doogie Hauser with Neil Patrick Harris. And Dina Mayer, who plays Dizzy, she was also in Beverly Hills 90210. And you'd think that Verhoeven would have learned his lesson with recruiting people from Saved by the Bell because Elizabeth Berkeley, who was the lead in Showgirls, was also from Saved by the Bell. But obviously that passed him by or maybe he thought that worked so well, let's do it again. The dialogue as well is very B-movie. There's one line that made me laugh. Our hero, Johnny Rico, everybody else thinks Carmen is dead. Oh, that's one thing in the plot as well. It's kind of like a runaround. Carmen thinks Johnny Rico is dead and then he's alive and then suddenly he thinks she's dead and everybody else is saying she's dead and he's convinced that she's alive and they say to him, how do you know? And his wonderful response is, I don't know how I know, but I know. <laughs> Which is just, I mean, that's Oscar-winning dialogue right there. So as long as you're prepared for something utterly, the I mean, the only brains in this are they have the arachnids and the, it looks like the brain bug has sucked out the brains of the human cast, really, if I'm honest, and the writer. But as long as you go into it with that kind of knuckleheaded view, then you'll get a lot of fun out of this. 
And I think Verhoeven and Neumeyer had a lot of fun with this and subverting the whole military machine. Uh, if you like the adverts that were in Robocop, then again, there's stuff like this, like military things like, you know, enlist today, would you like to know more? Or I'm doing my part and all these slogans, which are almost like I'd buy that for a dollar in Robocop. So again, it's the same public information film satire going on. The battle scenes, like I say, are very good. The CGI is great. The music, Basil Poldoris has, has listened to his Westerns because some of it is like a Western in space. He's listened to his Star Wars as well. So he, he really taps into what makes those themes great without imitating them, without being derivative of them. It was filmed in Hell's Half Acre in Latrona County in Wyoming, uh, in the Badlands in there. They had extreme weather while they were doing that. And that's where a lot of the battles take place. So it looks very cold at night and very warm during the day. And they got high winds as well. So they did suffer for their art, if art is what it was. It didn't do too well at the time. People thought it was fascist and therefore that didn't help it at all. But it has subsequently uh, made a quite a healthy profit. And it has generated, I think, about four sequels. On a budget of 100 to 110 million, made 121 million in the box office. So not a box office success, but I think subsequent to that, it's been rehabilitated. They've made subsequent animated movies and sequels, which, are, well, they're not really worth your time, to be honest. Verhoeven isn't involved with any of them. Casper Van Dien comes back for a couple of them, but there's no real need for a sequel. In fact, the second one, directed by Phil Tippett, it's interesting because the bugs are almost secondary to the plot. It's more like an episode of The Outer Limits, really. Uh, I enjoyed it. I, I saw it in the cinema. I thought it was great fun, completely mindless. But like I say, the battle scenes were good. The acting wasn't completely terrible. And it was good to see Verhoeven redeem himself after Showgirls. But I'm not going to say this is a cultural high point. But like I say, if, once you accept that everything Paul Verhoeven did in Hollywood was satirizing Hollywood and the United States, then it all makes a bit more sense. Well, that's, that's a very good summation, Devoy, and uh, I enjoyed it. I actually saw it shortly after it was released, got a copy out from Blockbuster Video. Was it a one-to-watch, Steve? It may have been a one-to-watch, particularly as you say yourself, it didn't do very well, and they always put the one-to-watch sticker on the films they couldn't get rid of. But subsequently, I think home video was where it became very profitable, right? You know, I was in high school and watched it uh, with a bunch of friends, and uh, I, I thought it was... It was very entertaining and actually thought Denise Richards was a bit better in this than she was as Dr. Christmas Jones in The World Is Not Enough, which was around the same time. I think she's probably one of the worst Bond girls. And I remember thinking Dina Mayer was very attractive and I looked her up after rewatching it. I hadn't seen the film in 25 years and she was being interviewed and they're saying, oh, there's going to be another revival. And who knows? But she didn't, she didn't even know and the interviewer said, oh, there's another revival in the works. But you never know when these things are announced on, like, E-Hollywood, whether it's actually going to pan out. But from what you're saying is the franchise isn't really worth going now. They don't need to make any more, right? Beginning in 2011, reports suggest that producer Neil Moritz and Columbia Pictures were interested in rebooting the film series by more closely following Heinlein's novel. However, there's been no update on that since 2016. But in 2021, Van Dien said a potential television series was being discussed at Sony Pictures Television, although talks had stalled due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. If they were to do it again, I think the only thing would be to get closer to Heinlein's novel. But why this movie works for me is because they take the seriousness of the novel and just subvert it completely. So it's actually quite funny. 
But I think because the satire was so in your face, I think a lot of people that went the joke went over their heads and they didn't see it as satire. They saw it as a straight laced propaganda thing, which it absolutely is not. And I don't mean to sound patronizing to anybody, but I don't know how you could even think that. I mean, looking at just how over the top it is. I don't know how people thought that because I certainly didn't at the time. I thought it was hilarious. In a good way. Yeah, I think you've got to make it to the end, haven't you? Because when yeah. we sir, first see the arachnids, it's like, as someone says about Jurassic Park, the last Jurassic Park, which apparently was awful, someone said, why is it that these this extinct race can continually outwit 21st century technology? At first you see the arachnids, and I was like, I don't see how threatening they are. Sure, if they'd be threatening if you were stranded there without weaponry. But then when we get to the end and we realise that they're, kind of sucking out the brains of soldiers they capture. Although if they captured Casper Van Dien, you'd think they wouldn't get much out of his brain. Ooh! Uh, <laughs> yes. Harsh but fair. Harsh yeah, but fair. yeah. That's, um, th- there's an element to it. I mean, I always find it amusing. This happened with Event Horizon when we did that. When you watch sci-fi films from the 90s and they're set in the future, although I think the future for the Event Horizon was like 2016, but when they're set in the future, their computer interfaces are completely dated. Mm. It was sunny to see the do you want to know more and, and see the like naff computer interfaces on that. <laughs> oh, they'd be much better now. One of the things that always amuses me about films is the kind of lack of basic first aid. There's two occasions where somebody gets impaled in something. I mean, one really quite seriously. It's, <laughs> and what do they do? They pull it out. You know, and you think, if you pull out something that's impaling someone, they're going to leave a big hole and they're going to bleed out. So it's like, oh, let's this big spike off a bug. Let's let's just pull it out of them because that will make them feel so much better. It's like, oh. Especially, you know, one of them is quite large and it's probably taken away half the chest. And so oh, I just thought, no, leave it in, leave it in. Why did, Why is it in Hollywood? Do you think if I'm being something sticking into me, I need to pull it out? Well, I tell you what, I think Paul Verhoeven should pay Michael Ironside's pension because in this, he has his limbs chopped off. Yeah. Whereas in Total Recall, he has his arms crushed off. Yeah. So, <laughs> just apparently, Michael Ironside's quite a serious method actor. Although you can't, uh, you can't have your arms and legs chopped off. But apparently, he's very much in character, whatever set he's on. Right. Which is amusing because when Dina may have finally got with Casper Van Dien, he suddenly has a change in, in character, doesn't he? Because yeah. when you see him, you think he's your typical kind of hard ass sergeant major type, yelling at all the recruits. But then he seems to play a bit of matchmaker between, you know, Casper and uh, Dina, even encouraging him to have a bit of rumpy pumpy before the bugle call type thing. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> one, yeah. one last night of passion before you're both killed, right? Yes. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you say, everything's inverted in Verhoeven. So, you know, in the traditional war movie, a soldier would show another soldier a picture of his girl back yeah. home. And you know that soldier was for it. Yeah. He's not going to make it back and marry her and, and, and everything. Yeah. In this, it it was interesting actually the the fact that um, women seem to have equal combat value, and the world government was kind of disturbing. And you just got the very brief flash of that there might be um, resistance to actually raging this war with the Iraqis. I think there's like a brief glimpse of a chat show where a female guest <laughs> gets into this big uh, 
Barney with a male guest. Um, oh, that's right. Yes, over whether they've got feelings or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Which again is is Verhoeven and Neumeyer just having a pop at chat show culture. Yeah. You know, that they'll talk about anything during the day. But I'm glad you enjoyed it second time around. I mean, I hadn't seen it in a while. And some of it maybe winched just that dialogue. But then I just thought, well, it's just meant to be a Mickey take of the old B movies. And yeah. back in the day, this would have been, you know, be thankful that there was a lot of money thrown up on the screen. Because if this was a proper B movie, the bugs would just be some crew member waving a tentacle off camera. <laughs> yeah. While, the, you know, while people hack at it, you know. Which I suspect some of the later sequels do kind of get down into that level because the budget certainly wasn't the same for some of the other ones. Well, if I can play Six Degrees of James Alroyd, it's just come to me, you know. um, Obviously, probably the most famous B-Bug movie is Them. Yeah. And believe it or not, Alroyd was a fan, although not a natural science fiction or horror fan. He grew up on film noirs, which he subsequently inspired him in his fiction. He, He did have a great fondness for that film, Them after seeing it as a child and probably seriously screwing up with his mind because I think the whole film is shot this kind of documentary style where it's almost like a bit like Orson Welles' War of the Worlds so like this could be happening, you know, newsreel footage and stuff. Alroy included it on a list of films he introduced at Denver Cinema when he did a whole series of films. It was the only science fiction film. Oh no, there was there was one over the Don Siegel's uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, well that is a classic. That, that... Yes. That is a very good, uh, that that might even feature in a future episode. So, Steve, seeing the other game we play, would you say that Black Books is Paul Verhoeven's Hamlet? I would. I I would. um, I think it's a a marvellous film, but there's a couple I haven't seen. Like, I haven't seen Spetters of his European films, but it's about, like, motorbike races, and I'm like, oh, that doesn't strike me as exciting at all. And I haven't seen Turkish Delight which I think was the first film he made with Rucker Hauer, and they made a bunch of films together until I think they fell out over Flesh and Blood, the film he made in Spain, uh, set in medieval times with Jennifer Jason Leigh, which is kind of so bad it's good, a guilty pleasure. I do think it's his Hamlet, but it's a close call between this and Soldier of Orange. And by the way, Rucker Hauer plays the lead in Soldier of Orange. Have you seen it? I haven't, but I've heard good things about it, so I must see it. Yeah, yeah, put it on your list because although it's probably not as exciting as Black Books, it's not quite as engrossing. It's certainly more realistic because, as I said, they do follow this uh, resistance fighter slash RAF pilot story very, very closely. So you, you get a much kind of more accurate feel because it's set earlier in the war. It actually starts with him as a student in like 1938, so shortly before war broke out. And it, it also follows the lives of his other students. One becomes a collaborator, one becomes a resistance member, and they follow various kind of paths they take. I'm going to go with a really close call between Black Book and Soldier of Orange. I think Starship Trooper is his Titus Andronicus, so there we are. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, except none of the characters end up in a pie, but they, they do end up in... in... Do, do the arachnids eat them? Or do they just... Do they just suck, suck their brains out, so they make yeah. they make a human brain pie, so they do kind of end up in a pie, you could say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's his, it's his Titus Andronicus. <laughs> I don't know if it was a thing at the time. Did you ever see Tremors? Yes, I did see Tremors. Yeah, uh, that scared me as a kid because of these giant worms coming out of the ground. Yes. And then about halfway through Starship Troopers, 
you do get these extra uber 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 big bugs that can come out the ground and let off fire and things like that but hey you just chuck a well-aimed grenade in the mush and all that and bang off they go so yeah <laughs> yeah which just goes to show you know just a little hand grenade and you can do all sorts of damage they kind of look like they need an atom bomb to go off and they're so well, big but yeah one yeah. little hand grenade does yeah. a lot of damage another game if would you say obviously it's not his hamlet but of his hollywood films would you say this is the best no robocop's the best definitely i like the kind of element of satire in this but i think they got it right and i think they got people who could actually act in robocop that's that's the other thing. I mean, this cast looks great, but you you know, um, certainly some of them just you think, oh god, <laughs> this is your first shot at the big time, and the money didn't go on hiring you or acting lessons. No, Robocop for me is the one that works the best. I think in terms of satire, in terms of story, um, acting, just the way it tells the story, um, I think where it works a lot better, and the philosophical questions that it poses about identity. Is Robocop still Murphy or or not? That kind of thing. So, no, Robocop for me is his best one. How about you? Showgirls? Uh, <laughs> well, I started Showgirls. I couldn't get through it. And again, I think Black Book is much sexier because the characters, you know, actually have things at stake and therefore they love each other, they don't love each other, they're on opposing sides, whereas Showgirls just isn't really about anything. So of his Hollywood ones... Well, I'm kind of fond of Basic Instinct. And I saw The Fourth Man many years ago, and I have to have a repeat viewing of that one. And then then I found out that Verhoeven said that Basic Instinct is basically a remake. But it's worth mentioning that Black Book obviously led to something of a revival of Verhoeven's reputation and critical success in Europe. And his follow-up film, although now he's in his 80s, is much less prolific, but his follow-up film, Al, with Isabelle Hubert, uh, was really, really good. Very Hitchcocky and very twisted. She plays this kind of director, creator of these violent, sexually violent video games. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. This sounds oh. fabulous. Oh, yeah, it's it's really, really good. You see parts of the video game and they're like, oh, yeah, they are disturbing. And she's always kind of yelling at her staff. She's like, no, more blood, more gore, more, more violence. In the meantime, it's set in Paris and she lives in this very wealthy neighbourhood. And there's a couple who've moved in next door. The wife is very religious. The man, you're not sure what his views are, but Isabel Hubert has this huge crush on him. He's much younger, but, you know, he's handsome and she's been not in the game for a while. So she's got this huge crush on him, but he's quite sexually aggressive towards her. So he's kind of, it's very hard to describe because it's very, very twisted. Think Hitchcock, but with the sexual politics of a Polanski film and very European. More of a kind of a highbrow basic instinct, actually, but okay. more believable. So it's it's well worth a look. So no cops called Nicky in it then? No, no. No cops called Nicky. No no kind of dodgy 90s discos. and Wearing a sweater. Oh, he did that yeah. in Liverpool. He gets stopped at the door. They're like, know. sorry, you're not coming in, mate. He probably had his trackie and traps on as well. That's bringing back all kinds of unpleasant memories. Oh, uh, well. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed our discussion of two great films in Paul Verhoeven's canon. Uh, he's had a diverse and controversial career and he's made many great films. And we've discussed two of them and I hope you go out perhaps and watch them on our recommendation and let us know what you think of the films and our opinion of them. Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? 
We look forward to hearing from you and we'll be joining you again soon with more highbrow lowbrow recommendations. You've been listening to Highbrow Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linkpr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.